I'm Linnea, and I like Death by DVD. It's a statement. There's been a big kidnapping on the West Coast. The victim is Patricia Hurst, the daughter of newspaper executive Randolph Hearst and a granddaughter of the legendary William Randolph Hearst. Richard Threlkeld reports. Patricia Hurst is 19 and a sophomore at Berkeley. She and her fiancé were in her apartment in this building near the campus last night when a woman and two armed men burst in, beat and bound her fiancé and a neighbor, dragged Patricia down the stairs, threw her into the trunk of a car and drove off firing a volley of shots around the neighborhood as they left. The neighbors were terrified. Well, I heard a scream, and then I heard what were gunshots. And I looked out the window, and I On April 15th, my comrades and I expropriated $10,660.02 from the Sunset Branch of the Hibernia Bank. Do you ever fantasize about listening to Hank? Why, hello there. I'm Hank. You're listening to Death by DVD, and this is the continuation of Patty Hearst in her own words. Or rather, in my own words. I pulled a little sneaky on you last week, and we cut right before we started to talk about the movie. Because I'm a bastard man, but it did serve a point because I taught you a bunch of stuff about Patty Hearst and the Symbionese Liberation Army. So now we can talk about the movie and it won't entirely be mumbo jumbo. Not entirely. I'm sure at this point you can gather that this is a special, the content being a little bit different than the norm. We've got the true crime part and then we've got the film part mixed in with it. Fun for everybody. So I guess this is where we get back into things. Where did I stop? Oh yeah, the movie. The movie, that's right. <laughs> the movie. I, I guess the best place to start is with who directed it. When it comes to the work of Paul Schrader, I don't think he has ever shied away from something that could be intimidating. And when it comes to Patty Hearst, what was the biggest and most important thing is telling Patty's story and it being factual on her story. From her perspective, what was her story based on her memoirs and everything included in that. Now, unfortunately, the movie is hyper-condensed. The only way to tell the story would have been in a 8, 9, 10-hour format, a miniseries or something like that, something that Paul Schrader himself even wishes it could have been the way, but 1988, that just wasn't the way. So the movie's condensed into a two-hour format, which you don't really get any of the people that I've just spent 40 minutes talking about. Willie Wolfs and Q, they're all in the film, but there is no characterization. There is no in-depth study upon these people, and you don't really even get to sympathize with them as humans. And uh, that is for an intentional point here, because as I said, this is Patty's story from her point of view. And there is no you know, questioning what we are given in this four walls, because what Paul Schrader did was tell that story. Paul Schrader is one of my, my favorite talents. He's responsible for Hardcore. It's an amazing movie. Uh, the 80s were really interesting for him. Uh, he did Hardcore, then American Gigolo, then Cat People. All three of those just very, very, very different movies. In 88, he did Patty Hearst. And then moving into the 1990s, you've got Light Sleeper, The Comfort of Strangers. One of my favorite movies, Autofocus from 2002. Got Adam Resurrected from 2008, an incredibly interesting film. Uh, throughout his entire career, his style visually has... Moving forward, I feel, constantly moving forward, constantly evolving, changing. He is a, a brilliant artist, and something that really is a, a great particular with Paul Schrader is his ability to pull in really, really talented DPs. A good cinematographer can save absolutely everything, and in this case, a guy named Bojan Bazili was behind the camera, and this is a fellow that, as you can see if you get into this film, is obsessed with light, and one of the most immaculate and beautiful things about Patty Hearst is the use of just pure bright, ultra-white light. Schrader is a hard animal to discuss. I mean, his writing is, I think, some would argue, much more prolific than his directing. He wrote Taxi Driver. Of course, that's one of the big ones. Another one of my favorite movies he's responsible for, Rolling Thunder from 1977, Tommy Lee Jones and William Devane. Great, great, great movie. Did The Mosquito Coast, Last Temptation of Christ. Screenplay. Screenplay for The Last Temptation of Christ. Based on a book by a Greek guy whose name I can't say. 
It's hard to try and imagine another director tackling this. I know this really got passed around quite a bit. Nicholas Kazan did the screenplay based on Patty's autobiography, and uh, Nicholas Kazan is the son of Elia Kazan, so... You know, with that name comes, for one, a lot of money and a lot of talent. And for the most part, his entire script is is what ended up being used by Paul Schrader. Uh, some stuff was changed. I think the ending was changed a little bit. Uh, you know, he came in and added his flair to it. But for the most part, it is Kazan's script. And what really makes this movie difficult is uh, the first third of the film takes place in a closet, entirely in a closet with your lead character blindfolded. So you can see why a lot of directors probably passed on this and the uh, intimidation of how do you present these people? What are you going to do with this? Are you going to tell? And here, this is you know a, a great thing about Paul Schrader, but a lot of people, you know, you look at the story and you look at the characters and you look at what you're trying to do. So are you going to tell a radicalized, revolutionary story? You know, are you going to tell this power for the people story? But by doing something like that, you're actually going to walk all over Patty Hearst. You're going to take away from what her story is, and that is the sensationaliz sensationalization, sensationalizing, sensation, whatever. That's what uh, the media did to this. They sensationalized. There we go. That's the wording. The case. They didn't look at the people. They didn't look at the people that were involved or the fact that they, you know, for lack of a better word, all had souls, individualism, uh, identity, that they all were something before they just became letters and names and, and newsprint. And all Patty Hearst was ever seen as in the first place was just a fucking rich girl, so. <laughs> the grace of Paul Schrader is him being able to take this situation and to figure out something with his imagination, which is exactly what he did because you've got the first third of this movie taking place in a closet with a blindfolded lead. So all you have is imagination, the lead's imagination. And the creativity and just the genius behind Paul Schrader, uh, behind a camera and as a director, this to me is, I think, one of the greatest examples of his ability to just take a story and tell you the story. So many directors lose that. I, I think you've got a lot of ambition with taking a story and making it your own and, and telling the story the way you want to tell the story. And I'm the director. I'm going to do it my way. But sometimes the story just needs to be told. Sometimes the story was written and created well enough, and in this case, a story that's true and so stranger than fiction, the dirty little fingers of somebody that wants to make it their way would have just wasted the whole idea. It would have diminished any of the beauty inside of the story, and despite it being a very cruel an agonizing, uh, political, strenuous, awful story, there is beauty, I think, at the end of the day. And not just in the, the, the sake of the being a beautiful film or there being beauty in the film, but really the lesson at the, the end of the day. Which I'd like to say is, fuck the man and don't trust honkies. And I'll tell you that any day of the week. But that's not entirely the lesson. Not entirely the lesson. Because, you know, I can't just push my thoughts on you. And I could. I mean, I have this venue and I have this soapbox and I, I totally could. But I want to... I don't know. I want to try and be diplomatic. I know that ship has sailed. But I'm trying. We're trying. Everyone's trying so hard these days. Hey, you know what? Maybe the whole lesson of the coup was the friends we make along the way. <sighs> Patty Hearst, Patty Hearst, Patty Hearst. That's what we're talking about. Patty Hearst. So the movie begins with the dearly departed and beautiful Natasha Richardson as Patty Hearst at campus at UC Berkeley. And the opening narration makes it seem like you're about to go on some feel-good ride where you learn something about yourself at the end of the day. Something in the narration that Patty says in this scene I, I think really carries the momentum and, and the idea of this movie. She says... There is little one can do to prepare for the unknown. And, I mean, in a whole, that's all reality is, looking deeply into the unknown. But in the case, what we're presented to in this story, everything is going to be completely unknown to Patty Hearst. And in real life, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how much of that is true. And that's not what we're here to discuss. But I, I just wanted to plant seeds, I guess, in your head. Sowing seeds of doubt. Always have doubt. Shown in a quick flash in the opening credits is Patty's engagement announcement. Just a little clue from Paul Schrader to help fill in some of these gaps of, well, how did they know where she lived? How did she get kidnapped? Like I said, a lot of things had to be condensed to get this movie off the ground, to get the story told in the format that you have. At the very beginning and toward the end, you've got this really sappy, almost lifetime movie soundtrack, but 
Quickly after that, the movie turns into this aching, hard synth sound, almost like cell doors just being slammed with some of Patty Hearst's actual tapes from the SLA mixed into it, and it just instantly kind of pushes you away from being able to relate to anything. It makes the reality of the movie even stranger and more disassociative, because when the, the, the soundtrack begins blaring and booming at you, it, it's just, it's not like music you've really heard, it's not like skinny puppy industrial, it's just very cold. It, it pushes you away, and I think a lot of the direction, a lot of the point uh, with, with this in general and, and some of the situations we're going to get into is to push you away. You're introduced to the SLA with the kidnapping of Patty Hearst, recreated directly from her words, their invasion of her apartment, they beating the living hell out of her fiancé, and her most important thought at this sequence, something that horrifies me when I watch the movie and makes my heart just race a little bit, that she keeps repeating her, her only thought inside of her head is, please don't bury me, please don't bury me, please don't bury me, please don't bury me, something reminiscent of a movie that came out in the same era that obviously was influenced by Patty Hearst, The Candy Snatchers. Hey, that's another movie that you can get right from Vinegar Syndrome. Where a heiress is kidnapped and buried alive. Now, of course, that movie came out afterward, but I'm making a fucking reference here. You've got to imagine that fear, and I love that trickling effect that you get from her narration, her inner fear that she's going to be buried alive, and that's what she's most concerned about, not... My fiancé could be bleeding to death, or they're going to rape and ravage me. Please don't bury me. Please don't bury me. Please don't bury me. And I think that shows something about Patty Hearst. I think that shows something about, especially in the four walls of this movie and the character we're talking about. Because Patty Hearst is real, let me remind you. But Natasha Richardson's Patty Hearst, and, and this faculty, that's the thought. That's the biggest fear, and that's what we learn about her is... Her whole entire life, she has been forced to live in a certain mold. In real life, there's information that while the FBI was researching the Hearsts and looking into her life, they had found out that Patty was, before her fiancé, dating an African-American and was very, very happy with him, and her mother forced that relationship to end because of social circles and social status, that it wasn't proper for her to be dating an African-American. It wasn't right for her to be dating a man of color. It looked bad on the Hearst family. You don't have that representation in the movie. But again, me giving you that little bit of a fact, you can humanize Patty a little bit more. <sighs> See, I'm conflicted at this point because I, I, with intent, have released real information, and now I'm trying to discuss the movie while I keep stressing. It's Patty's story, it's Patty's story, it's Patty's story. And what's really important, though, is, is what I'm trying to tell you, and what the movie Patty Hearst is from 1988 is her story. Her side of a million-sided story, just like the SLA logo, seven-headed beast. There are so many different heads to this, and unfortunately many of them have been diminished. Most of them have been cut off, and there's no way to really find out the, the truth. You just have dozens and dozens and dozens of files and news reports that you can dig through if you want to. Obviously I have. We have a very lonely person, somebody that has never really been allowed to be themselves, somebody that has you know, ooh, boo-hoo, been born into the bourgeoisie, and they have everything. You know, honestly, what wouldn't a Hearst kid have? And you take it into an era and a time like now, I mean, when Elon Musk's children are 19 years old, will you have a lot of sympathy for them if something bad happened to them? The richest man on the planet's children, a man who does not share his wealth, a man who easily could solve world hunger, a man who could feed and clothe the poor, a man who could, with his wealth change our entire existence as humans living together in harmony, but instead is trying to throw coups in Venezuela so he can get fucking lithium. Would you feel sympathy? That's kind of what immediately was th the news, you know. Uh, nobody really had sympathy for Patty. Nobody really cared. Oh, millionaire's daughter gets kidnapped. And the whole point was for the SLA to get their two soldiers back, which was completely laughed at. You know, nobody's going to take that seriously, and they're treated as terrorists at this point. So Patty, at this point, is pretty fucked. The sole reason the SLA has kidnapped her is now completely meaningless. This is where we start getting a look at our cast of characters and we get to see the people behind the masks. Sin Q is played by the incredible Ving Rhames. William Forsyth as Tico. 
and both of these play off each other really wonderfully, and it's kind of neat. Neither of them really share a lot of dialogue. They share a lot of screen time with each other, but it's it's almost the opposition of their performances, that Ving Reigns is dominating the screen. He is not shown to be quite as articulate as Sin Q truly was, but he radiates power. He radiates being the leader as to where William Forsyth's Tico is just a very snivelingly bored suburbanite who went out and wanted to do some wild cowboy shit. The SLA decides at this point that, all right, you're not going to free our two comrades, so this is what you've got to do. We want you to allot $70 to each family member so they can have food. We want to start a food program, and we want to feed and clothe the poor. The hearse immediately, we can't do that. But they countered, and the counter wasn't, you know, a horrible idea. What's not completely shown and allowed for you to see in the movie is the SLA's food idea, and this is where I had referenced earlier that Huey Newton of the Black Panthers himself had even written an open letter in regards to the food program, and the means in which the SLA was operating under they didn't completely agree with, but they agreed with their point, and they agreed with what their entire message was. Feed and clothe the poor. This, in, in real life, went fairly well. There were four occasions of this, and one of which turned into a riot, one of which did not work out, and it was instigated by the police. This is what made news. This is what was shown. It wasn't the fact that there were boxes upon boxes of food with the SLA stamp being sent out to people. And everyone had sympathy at this point. But there are many occasions, and even shown in the movie, a news report of somebody saying, I feel bad for that girl, but my kids have to eat. Something that isn't really considered. Something that isn't taken into full acknowledgement by the people of power that, yes, there are people without food. Right now in the United States of America, there are people without food, as there were in 1974. The government sends $600 out, and it's like arrested development. How much is a banana? You judge me. You're the selfish one. You're the one who charged his own brother for a Bluth frozen banana. I mean, it's one banana, Michael. What could it cost? Ten dollars? You've never actually set foot in a supermarket, have you? I don't have time. Like, 400 bucks? Here, here, take 600. You'll be fine. You're given a brief glimpse at the chaos that pursues on the failed attempt at the food delivery system. And again, it's all through Patty's perspective. She's still in the closet every waking day of her life. Now, the SLA is treating her to the Geneva Convention Accords of having a prisoner. She's being fed. She's being bathed. And throughout this, she starts to, I wouldn't say become close or have a kinship, but she begins to associate. She begins to learn the identity of those around her and how to become accustomed to being stuck with the SLA while living in this closet. And the closet shots are some of the most articulate and beautiful of the movie. And like I said, it's a third of the movie, but the way it was handled is, is just astonishing. You've got a, an amazing use of light. A set is built, and Patty is obviously in this closet inside of the set, and everything are these low shots of these awful, huge, almost Greek-like gods yelling at her from this opening, which is the closet door, and just stark, beautiful light shining behind her. And in the early parts of the movie, while Sin Q rants and raves about America, the lighting is almost reminiscent of being in a cell, and I feel that you get this feeling that not only is Patty being kidnapped, not only is Patty being held against her will, but everyone truly is. Everyone involved in this story is truly being held against their will by the fascist concepts, by the constraints of America. You see Sin Q articulately arguing and, and yelling his point while cast in this light like cell bars are, are just surrounding him completely and everyone else because even in their own thoughts, they are in jail. Even in their own thoughts, they have imposed themselves into a society that can't see outward and they themselves are even guilty of xenophobia. You know, the thing is, no matter what, every side always meets in the middle. The far right and the far left will meet in the middle, and they do all the time. Patty is a prisoner of the SLA, and the SLA is a prisoner of society. But aren't we all? At this point, I think you are 100% are allowed to acknowledge that this film is, is Paul's interpretation of Patty's story and almost to the word, and it's just that. One side of a story. 
Keep repeating ourselves. One side of a story that we really will never know all the other sides to. It's not twisted and it's not distorted. Paul simply took Patty's side and visualized it in an attempt to, to allow what Patty had to say to be visualized, maybe to be taken differently and not judged. Because I've said this also several times, all the public saw Patty as was a rich girl. And by the public, I mean the... The left with no leader. The, the, the empty liberal left that has... A thousand voices that has nothing to say. Does that make sense? And by no means am I trying to assert myself as right-wing or on the right. I'm looking at every situation and the pretense of what we're discussing. Major events are just mentioned briefly because it's through Patty's perspective. She's still just stuck in the closet. She's let out every now and again and she gets these brief glimpses of what's going on. She hears what's going on, but... Her entire reality is with the SLA. Everything she learns and is told is being told and taught to her by the SLA, so she has no true opinion or thought process of her own at this point. Something major like the food program, it's just not covered, for one, because it had to be condensed, and two, Patty just really wasn't privy to it. But in reality, I think Patty's father's refusal for the food program is something that helped radicalize her and helped her realize they don't actually care. At this point in the film, our cast of characters begin removing their masks. Everyone has tried to hide themselves from Patty, and, and they begin becoming more comfortable. I'm kept blindfolded, usually, so that I can't identify anyone. Um, my hands are, are often tied, but not, I'm, generally, I'm, they're not. And, um, uh, um, I'm not gagged or anything, I'm, and I'm comfortable. And uh, I think you can tell that I'm not really terrified or anything. No, I'm okay. She starts to socialize more. She starts learning more about the sexual nature of this because it's very comradely. Comradely, yes, that's the word I'm going to use. It's very comradely to, uh, you know, relieve your comrade and everyone fucks. They don't have time for sex because they're so worried about politics. But no, everybody fucks. And this is, I guess, where we need to apply a trigger warning to the show because there are two rapes of Patty Hearst that are shown in this film. You've got the physical rape of Patty Hearst, and then you've got the philosophical rape of Patty Hearst. Her entire image, her persona, her character, her life was just thrown onto television, was just exposed by the media. And for the most part, it was all wrong. Most of the time... It was this inept fantasizing about who or what Patty Hearst actually was, and then when she revealed herself, and when she was finally there for everyone to hear, it was almost like a burden. It was a problem. They enjoyed the fantasy and the idea of Patty Hearst far more than who she actually was or is. But as the masks come off, what you are given is an example of the, the, the very small bit of character development we have. We are allowed to get to know by face and by attitude who some of these SLA members are. You get very brief depictions of Gabby and Zoya, Galena. Despite being a very important member uh, to the SLA, Cujo is really shown sparingly throughout this film. There are important moments that need to take note of, and we'll get there in just a minute. But the characterization of these people isn't entirely important. And again, if there was more time... If this could have been an eight-hour miniseries, every single person deserves to have their respects shown, and it's something that Schrader would have even would have loved to have taken this and done it from the idea of Sin Q. But again, the subject matter was specifically the story of Patty Hearst. But so many of these stories need to be told, and I was raving earlier about the genius of Sin Q. This is really where that starts to come into play. Because even Patty, for the longest time, was under the belief that the SLA was, was in the thousands. There were massive cells. There were people all over the place. There weren't. There were like nine of them. It was just how it was handled. They had these communiques, similar to what Che Guevara and Castro would do, where they would record messages and send them out to the major news sources. To those who would bear the hopes and future of our people, let the voice of their guns express the words of freedom. Greetings to the people, comrades, sisters, and brothers. General Field Marshal Sin speaking. The Simonese World Council, the court of the people, 
have just finished hearing tapes and reading some of the news reports and statements made by the Hearst family concerning the arrest of Patricia Campbell Hearst. In the court's second tape by Patricia, it was stated that any good faith gesture on the part of the Hearst Empire would be basically okay. We, however, understand that Patricia wants to come home as soon as possible, and that this statement could be misinterpreted as meaning that an untrue gesture of good faith and regret would be accepted by the people. And this is not the case. Therefore, at the end of that tape statement by Patricia, I myself, by the direction of the court, saved the feelings of the court and thereby clarified the request of the people. That statement reads as follows. We wish to clarify what your daughter has said about our request for a good faith gesture on your part. The people are awaiting your gesture. You may rest assured that we are quite able to assess the extent of your sincerity in this matter, and we will accept a sincere effort on your part. We are quite able and aware of the extent of your capabilities, as we are also aware of the needs of the people. The Hearst Empire has attempted to mislead the people and to deceive them by claiming to put forth a good faith gesture of $2 million. This amount is not at all a good faith gesture, but rather is an act of throwing a few crumbs to the people, forcing them to fight over it amongst themselves. But after kidnapping Patty Hearst, Sin Q managed literally to dominate the control, the control of the media. All over the world, he had managed to strike fear into people who listened to him, and many of these people are people that look at leaving the message of Bernie Sanders and go, that's fucking communism, man. Ain't no commie shit for me. My granddaddy didn't fight no communist for, well, maybe he didn't fight the communist, or maybe he fought the, you know what, I don't care. Granddaddy didn't fight no foreigner for communist. You get the point, right? I don't have to keep doing the impersonation. It's just this blind fear. And everyone is guilty of xenophobia in this universe, in this film. Every single character is guilty of sexism and going against what they praise to be their ultimate truth. And you're shown through Natasha Richardson's Patty Hearst just that. That everything is bullshit. Ideology, trust, love, uh, the sanctimonious camaraderie. We all have to get each other off bullshit. It's just rape. It's a rape of identity. It's a physical rape. Everything is one massive circle jerk. From her persona being just completely destroyed by the media to herself being destroyed by the SLA. Communications from the SLA were being published everywhere. They were being handed out all through California. They were all over the world, uncensored by the media. These messages recorded by the army were being played on morning news, 6 o'clock, midnight. The whole world was clinging to what was happening, all while at the same time judging Patty Hearst as some rich bitch. There were sympathetic people. There were people in the streets with their hand up. There were radicals that cared about the movement. There were people that wanted the poor to be clothed. They wanted people to have food. Their voices clearly weren't heard over the marching machine of fascism, but that tends to happen. As Patty begins to be indoctrinated and radicalized to the SLA way and, and the masks are taken off, her blindfold is eventually removed. And this is where something very important happens. Sin Q tells Patty, that the FBI killing her would be like a coup for fascist repression. And he's 100% right. Ironically, he gives her a gas mask, but in the end, she doesn't have to use it. Much to the dismay and sadness of the FBI, who didn't get their kill. He tells her if the FBI comes in looking for them, looking to swarm, they're going to shoot her, they're going to end her, and it's going to be for a point. He gives her the option to fight or die, to join or go home. Now, you're given a very heavy subtlety that it's a threat on her life. Again, this is the perspective and point of view of Patty Hearst, so what we're allowed to see is in that realm. Is that the truth? I, I can't comment. But allowing the facts to wash over you and looking at this from every single angle, I think the radicalization of Patty Hearst started a little bit before this, and in my humble opinion, I think it really was a bit of a, a punk rock rebellion for her. It was a bit of a, a fuck you mom and dad. Now, we'll try and keep these opinions to ourselves here because they don't fit the narrative that Paul Schrader is showing us. They don't fit into Patty Hearst's story. They fit into the actual story 
They fit into the whole story. They are all pieces of a puzzle, but unfortunately this is a puzzle that, you know, has been shipped around and sent to two or three Goodwills and most of the pieces are gone. The tape that kept the box closed is broken off and and there's pieces from other puzzles now shoved inside of it. You try to put it together and like one corner is Waco and the other side's Ruby Ridge and a little bit of the Unabomber's up in there on one side. It gets all over the place. But ultimately, Patty chooses to fight. Whether she was persuade with the idea of death or not, she chooses to fight and join the SLA. And immediately her messages home go from I'm okay mom and dad to y'all some fucking pigs. Wow. You aren't even going to help the people and you're not going to help me. Fuck you guys. I am for the SLA. Greetings to the people. This is Tanya. On April 15th, my comrades and I expropriated $10,660.02 from the Sunset Branch of the Hibernia Bank. Casualties could have been avoided had the persons involved cooperated with the people's forces and kept out of the way until after our departure. I was positioned so that I could hold customers and bank personnel who were on the floor. My gun was loaded, and at no time did any of my comrades intentionally point their guns at me. Careful examination of the photographs, which were published, clearly shows this is true. Our action of April 15th forced the corporate state to help finance the revolution. As for my ex-fiancé, I don't care if I ever see him again. During the last few months, Stephen has shown himself to be a sexist, ageist pig. Not that this was a sudden change from the way he always was. Overnight, boo, radical patty, cowboy patty. And that's really what's happening here is Some cowboy shit. Patty tells us something again very important. Don't examine your feelings. They're no help at all. And the rape of Patty at this point is now shown to be a good comrade. It's really what these people believe for uh, their abuse, for their hunger and craving of power. It's being a good comrade. It, regardless, is rape. And I said this at the beginning of the show, but where we're at in the story, just to remind you how similar politics were in 1974 to our, as they are now, two weeks after Patty was kidnapped, President Nixon was brought up to be impeached for Watergate. Now, he stepped down as President of the United States of America, allowing Gerald Ford to become President, and he eventually was pardoned. But can you see how history continuously begins to repeat itself? And it's all because truly we have forgotten and allowed ourselves to forget these things. Or we've allowed the the new modern enemy to overpower what the other one was to where we look back on it and say, ah, they weren't even that bad. Reagan wasn't that bad, you know, starting Mujahideen and all that and selling weapons and strains of the plague to Saddam Hussein. It, it wasn't that bad. It's not like Donald Trump. No. That's the fucking problem. They're all bad. It's a history of bad men, in fact. Every single goddamn one of them, I don't care how nice Jimmy Carter seems to be. Look at him. He's 95 years old, had brain cancer, he's still building houses. He's helping the people. Motherfucker was still the president of the United States of America, and I really don't feel that there's anything more corrupt at this point than the United States of America's president. And please, I'd love to be proven wrong, but uh, history is far older than me, and in the many, many years of the esteemed title of the United States president, when have we had the proof or any acknowledgement that they actually are for us outside of being for a corporation? Corporate fascist America, whether it's guns, germs, or steel, it's always corporate when it comes to America. This leads us to the most heartbreaking scene of the movie. And I think the powerhouse performance that capitalizes the art and the beauty of this film. Natasha Richardson's Patricia Hearst is still in the closet. They have removed her blindfold. They are allowing her to become a member of the SLA. She's she's becoming a, a good comrade, helping everyone's comradely needs. And she breaks down in the closet and, and just snaps upward and begins spouting out all these things that they say to her. You know, oh, you're so tight. You're a cum dumpster. What can we do to her next? Oh, I've got an idea. It's heartbreaking and it's disgusting. Even recanting it and, uh, you know, quoting the dialogue, it, it's it's uncomfortable and it's it's... Again, the striving point with what the representation on screen is. I'm going to say it again. God damn it. This is Patty's story. And I have mixed in so many other universes 
and still struggle to to keep this thin line of what is reality in the idea of Patty's story and what is reality in our our world. You dig? You you following? This is a difficult episode. I I know. This is why I immediately regretted coming up with the idea. Patty repeats all of these things, all of these awful things that are said to her while she's being raped and abused. And this lets the reality of the situation really sink in. This this really allows you to know where we're at because we are prisoner with Patty. We are in that room with her. Our POV is hers. Everything that we are allowed to know, all the knowledge and the, the few glimpses of these characters is from Patty's perspective and Patty's point of view. So we have been abused just as, as much as she has. And a lot of the lighting, a lot of the music cues, a lot of the set design, I think, really is made to encapsulate that and to force you into feeling secluded and to abuse you to an extent, to really make you feel alone, lonely, to make you feel hopeless. And that is a really powerful point of watching this movie is being able to connect and to feel... Patty's just hopelessness. What option does she have? Really, what can she do? I mean, it's it's constantly pointed out she could have just walked away, right? She's been given a lot of opportunities to just walk away. What you gotta look at is is just the destitute loneliness and, and the barren hopelessness she's feeling. She feels like her parents have given up on her. Her father is, isn't gonna step up. They're not going to come in and save the day and make everything okay. She has no option, and where else would she go? She's already been made to feel completely worthless. Being constantly raped and abused by these people, I mean, what, what option does she feel that she has? And this is where things start getting really interesting for Patty. What exactly is a revolution? A revolution is an act of violence where one class overthrows the other. This is something the character Tico, played by William Forsyth, says as we move into the next act of the movie. Something that echoes in my mind. You know, most people, especially in the, the 60s and 70s and the, the freak power movement, the kids that were out there fighting for equality, some of these kids that became the SLA, the kids that went to Woodstock, marched in the streets. After the murder at Kent State, these people challenged the police. They challenged authority. They thought of themselves, for the most part, as patriots that they were standing for the American way, that they were standing for what we truly are, a country of equality, a country of beauty, a country of peace. Things that, just like the SLA, sound really great on paper, but nobody's ever been able to actually prove. Just like fucking communism on paper. It sounds great. Put it into theory and, yeah, you know, look at Stalinism and we can see what happened in Russia in the 50s. Doesn't always work out that well. But these white trash bastards adorned with Camp Auschwitz t-shirts and swastikas that, that storm Washington, D.C., they too think of themselves as patriots. And this is really where we got ourselves into a good old-fashioned problem here. And I mentioned this a while back. The sides always meet in the middle, and it's not just with extremities. Everything eventually meets in the middle. It's, it's just existence. It's life. It's just how things happen. Everything truly does meet in the middle. Where else can concept go? The farther extreme you go, the more each side begins to meet in the middle and become more and more the same. It doesn't matter how far left or right one thing is, but when you really drive extremities into it and start practicing acts of violence, when you start destroying and when you start striking fear... What else do you have to call it but terrorism? But terrorism is always under the guise of patriotism, is it not? I mean, the extremists in the Middle East, Mujahideen, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, aren't they in their own right doing the right thing? You know, don't they feel that? Don't they think, well, we're doing the right thing. Everyone else is against us. That's extremity in any generalization. It, you just think you're doing the right thing. That also is being brainwashed. Being told something so many times, you just suddenly think it's true and you have to act on it because it's patriotism. Ooh, brainwashing? Talking about Patty Hearst and brainwashing comes up? Get out of town. Get out of town! Cannot believe it that we've gotten to that point. Finally. We're not even actually there yet. I'm sorry. So whether or not she's indoctrinated or she's acting, buying into the hype to save herself or on a vacation away from her parents enacting some cowboy punk rock fantasy. Patty Hearst 
is now a member of the SLA. She chose to join instead of go home, which, I mean, you can just go home, you can just walk away. Like the Lord Humongous says, can you really? I don't, I, I, is that just a euphemism for dying? Because it kind of sounds like it. There has been too much violence, too much pain. None here without sin. But I have an honorable compromise. Just walk away. Give me a pump. The oil. The gasoline. And the whole compound. And I spare you lives. Just walk away. I will give you safe passage in wasteland. Just walk away. And there will be an end to the horror. Hattie is given the war name Tanya after the revolutionary who fought with Che Guevara in Bolivia. Her mask is removed and her vision is restored as she is now an urban gorilla. One of the SLA, reborn unto them. Reborn unto them through brainwashing, torture, rape. At this point, Patty has to get fit and she is brought into a hard exercise cycle with the rest of the family members. I hate using that term because this ain't no fucking Manson family shit. This is not a bunch of people brought into this situation, hyped out on LSD, jerking themselves off over some revolution that may or may not happen in the middle of the desert. There are strengths to this. There, there are realizations to the SLA and all extremist groups that unfortunately at some point they had a valid beginning. I'm not saying the Nazi party had a valid beginning. I'm not saying Al-Qaeda had a valid beginning. But at some point, someone's thoughts had some fucking validity. I mean, nothing else could be started if it didn't. Other people wouldn't be able to believe in this and join forces if there wasn't even a frame or tiny glimpse of validity to whatever thought they were having that somebody else shared. Now, charisma does play a big part into this, but SinQ wasn't that charismatic to form this. There are other forces at hand. There are other hands in the pie, I guess you could say. The mastery of SinQ, as I pointed out, was the ability to... Uh, convince the entire world that this song and dance was legion, for they are many, and it, it wasn't. It was a bunch of honkies. It was a bunch of bored suburbanites and one man against the world, as he thought. And, of course, poor Patty fucking Hurst. Patty soon learns that there are no other units of the SLA. She learns that everyone she's been introduced to, SinQ and company, is it. That's That's them. And it's a devastating sequence because you can see the pain on her face. You can see the, the utter dismay. Natasha Richardson, God rest her soul. I mean, her entire family was talented, but this is an overall terrific performance. I really feel going back and forth with this movie, there's times where I, I just kind of forget it's an actress. I kind of lose, I mean, and it's not like she exactly looks like Patty Hearst, but it's the mannerisms, it's the voice, it's the way that she's managed to control this pain and allow you to see it on screen. Some of the casting is fucking beautiful, though. William Forsyth as Tico is spot on. It, it, most of everyone. Ving Rhames is a bit big for SinQ, but hey, we're, we're just breaking eggs here. This isn't it. We're just wasting time. And we don't need filler on this episode. Holy shit. Patty is betrayed and she's shocked, but honestly, more than anything else, she's feeling lost and hopeless. In the narrative that Paul Schrader is telling us, she is lost and hopeless. You see, Patty's story, her, her side of her story, her side of the story, it's a little bit more fascinating than a rich kid who just decided to leave home and become an urban gorilla. At least it makes for a more interesting movie to sell. We're told in Patty's narration, think before you speak. Crush any part of you that is Patty Hearst. Patty tells herself this to adjust to, to becoming this new gorilla, to knowing that people like Yolanda and Tico don't want her around, that they want her dead, knowing that the general public doesn't really care, that they just kind of take her as, eh, bad things happen to the rich girl. As Patty begins to become part of the SLA, we learn immediately that they're going to rob a bakery. And it's kind of a, a lighthearted comedy scene where she's confused. Why would they rob, why would you rob a bakery? It's just code word for banks, because that's where the bread is. And you've got, following this, one of the best scenes with William Forsyth. Uh, he just... What you've got with Tico is a man who uh, clearly never had an identity of his own, was never happy with being who he was. And he's in blackface and has this Afro wig on and is going... And this is how they move. This is how the SLA moves throughout the night and finds different safe houses as all of them cover themselves in blackface and try and fit in and, and move along with Sin Q. And he's in the bathroom, just he's got this whole accent going on and he's 
trying to put on his best, I don't know, inner black guy performance. And it, obviously it's something that under other pretenses could be taken incredibly seriously and could be offended, uh, could be very offensive to people. But in the format and what you're shown in this movie and the SLA's attempt to survive and move, it, it's a weird light heart comedy. It's not lighthearted comedy. Let's 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 rephrase that. But you've got these weird glimpses into the, the the personality faults and the defects of who some of these SLA members are and some of their quirks and some of the problems with them and you can get an allowance because of Paul Schrader and his retelling of Patty Hearst's story of how they even came to to be in this part or how they even came to this being a part of their lives. And like I pointed out with Tico, a complete lack of his own identity. At this point in the movie, the Symbionese Liberation Army love triangle is more intense than Fleetwood and Max at the time of rumors being recorded. Of course, it's a love triangle for everybody but Patty, who is just being raped. It doesn't matter even if at the time it was consensual. She's still a, a, a kidnapped victim. There is no consensual nature about this. Why the SLA is referred to as a terrorist organization begins to bloom at this point in the story as they come up with the idea that bank robbery is completely necessary and this is what they must do to survive. One of the most infamous moments of the Patty Hearst case. Forever on film, the SLA robs this bank man and Patty is on the forefront. She even has a speech that she has to memorize. Of course, in the movie, she fucks it up, but it becomes a moment of pure bliss for everyone. It becomes a moment where they're all finally recognized, where they have capitalized on their entire message. Every single media source is publishing them. Every single media source has gotten fanatical with Patty Hearst is a gorilla. Patty Hearst has joined them. We're given the implication that Patty was led. We're given the implication that she was coursed into this and definitely not acting on her own. In real life, lip readers were hired, and the story is a little bit different. What we're shown in Schrader's retelling of Patty Hearst's story is a very timid and meek person who was afraid, was under guns, was going to be hurt if they didn't commit to this. In reality, it seems like Patty was yelling, get on the floor, motherfucker, and put your face down. Again, I'm not trying to dissuade the narrative. I'm not trying to push away from Patty's narrative. I'm just pointing little directions every now and again that are available. They're, they're factoids of truth. Things that uh, just pepper the story a little bit, make it a little spicy, give it a little bit more of an interesting kick. I mean, truth be told, when the truth is told, isn't it a little bit more interesting? Or at least being able to think for yourself. That's interesting too. A thing to take note of is when you watch the actual footage of the bank robbery, Patty doesn't jump. She's not afraid when shots are fired off. Those two shots that are fired off took the life of civilians. Two human beings died in this attack. This appropriation, as the SLA worded it, of funds. They were appropriating funds back to themselves from the United States government, which was stolen from them. So even in Sin Q's eyes, this was not a bank robbery. But this puts the SLA uh, onto the, the mouth of every single person in the United States because Patty took part in this. Patty freely with her messages and communiques being sent rapidly from the SLA to the media sensationalized this. And, and, and it went from, fuck Patty, she's just a spoiled rich girl, to power to Patty. And just like that, overnight, she became a name for the people. Greetings to the people. This is Tanya. 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 
not Patty. Because at this point, Patty's dead, and she has taken on not just the war name, but the persona of Tanya. She's Tanya too. Tanya to Cujo's Che Guevara. Patty is shown to be indifferent after the bank robbery. It's made to seem like she's just happy to be accepted, to be no longer abused, to be considered an anything. And I think that's a striving point and something that needs to be acknowledged throughout the entirety of this movie is Patty's struggle to just be accepted as, as anything other than what she is and everyone's involvement. No one wanting to be who they are. Uh, the, the, the lack of identity that I brought up with Tico. At this point, we get a very brief look into Willy Wolf. And what we're shown is just a typical jaded youth. Which, honestly, it's, it's really what they all were. But Cujo had more to do with this than just some uh, dreamy gorilla fantasy that he was living. This wasn't just a Che fetish. There wouldn't have been an SLA without him. And Patty had some form of relationship with him, whether it was forced or coerced or not, Cujo and Patty Hearst became intimate in some facet. He gave her an Olmec monkey charm that even when arrested after his death, she still managed to keep. This was used against her in court uh, as to why would you keep something that was given to you by your rapist? A good question, but something that ultimately doesn't matter, the choices that Patty made, or, or if she was truly brainwashed, something you wouldn't even really need to question. Of course she would keep it if she was brainwashed, which at this point in the narrative is being introduced. It wasn't solely something used later on for Patty in her court case. The idea of Stockholm Syndrome was still shockingly new at this point, but it's something that begins to pop up in the narrative here. Patty's parents, especially her mother and their attorneys, began using this. She's brainwashed. She's not in her right mind. She's been kidnapped. Even then-Governor Ronald Reagan came forward and said all of the things that Patty Hearst may or may not have done have been done and committed while she was kidnapped, so it's got to be under the guise that she was kidnapped. The media itself began to sensationalize the idea that she had been brainwashed long beforehand, to the extent that she releases a communique stating, it's laughable to even consider that I've been brainwashed, I am doing this all on my own accord, something that would really come back to bite her in the ass later on. For those people who still believe that I'm brainwashed or dead, I see no reason to further defend my position. Consciousness is terrifying to the ruling class, and they will do anything to discredit people who have realized that the only alternative to freedom is death, and that the only way we can free ourselves of this fascist dictatorship is by fighting, not with words, but with guns. I am a soldier in the people's army. Patria o muerte, venceremos. I renounced my class privilege when Sin and Cujo gave me the name Tanya. While I have no death wish, I have never been afraid of death. For this reason, the brainwashed duress theory of the pig hearsts has always amused me. Life is very precious to me, but I have no delusions that going to prison will keep me alive. And I would never choose to live the rest of my life surrounded by pigs like the hearsts. Death to the fascist insect that preys upon the life of the people. You're informed and it's made regular that when the pigs come in, we fight. We fight and we die. No jail. Surrender is never an option and surrender was never an option for the SLA. They hoped of being killed in this firefight, this, this massive war against the pigs because it would rise them up to the idea of martyrdom that the, the people on the street would look at the SLA and see that they were wasted by these pigs and that we need to stand up and we need to fight and we need to do it for the justice of the people to destroy the fascism that is feeding upon all of us. They were ready to die. They were ready even after the bank robbery to go down. And that's what everyone was expecting. It, it's fucking Patty Hearst. It's a Hearst. They kidnapped one and the FBI's not kicking down the doors? The CIA nobody? ATF? Well, I don't even think they were around at the time period. But regardless, isn't that fucky? Isn't something fishy about this? But everyone was ready. The SLA continuously moves from safe house to safe house in an attempt to cover and hide their own tracks. At this point, SinQ decides that they need to go door to door. They need to start going to the people. They see the support. They, they, can, even on, they can even on the news hear people. Power to SLA. Probably the worst idea that, that could happen. Hey! We're being hunted by the FBI, we kidnapped Patty Hearst, let's just go door to door. But it shows to warrant something. What we are allowed to see is that some black Muslims step up and begin supporting the SLA. And the characterization, there are no names, 
that we're given in this film is that these guys are NOI, another fun acronym, the Nation of Islam. And in the Nation of Islam, it was purported in the, the 60s to the 90s that they had a hit squad and that these gentlemen would dress in a very specific way. And the show The Wire, you have a, a infamous character that dresses in the same purported style, a suit with a bow tie. These, and I'm, I'm not saying it's what's shown in the movie, but this imagery is what is purported to be the NOI hit squad and that these people have taken up with the SLA and taken up for their plight. In real life, there were many other organizations outside of that, and I'm not going to you know, accuse or say NOI had any involvement with them, but the Black Gorilla family, many other left-wing radical organizations, many other people in the Pan-African movement were all giving attention and sympathy to the SLA. Despite how heinous their shotgun murder even before the Hearst kidnapping was. The SLA was not pushed away, though. People wanted food and freedom. People in these neighborhoods wanted food and freedom. They, they believed the offer. Anyone was uh, willing to work in, in a situation that could possibly bring this idea to fruition of, you know, power to the people. It didn't really matter. It didn't really matter how awful the mannerisms of making these things happen were. Even the children scream, kill some pigs. From the mouth of babes, right? But at this point, with the help of the NOI, the SLA moves to LA, the City of Angels, which proves to be incredibly deadly for them. At this point of the film, Sin Q is made to be a, a, a raving, self-obsessed egomaniac. But he literally tricked the FBI into believing the SLA was fucking Legion. He had their messages uncensored on every TV in the world. Schrader makes him out to be via Patty's words as a, a less than impressive hood. But the truth of the reality and the things that really happened, the things that we have proof that happened, show Sin Q to be a, an urban guerrilla genius. He scared the entire world, but you know what? So did Patty. If Patty had a lucky star, now would be her time to thank it. She goes on an outing with Tico and Yolanda, an outing that proves to be very, very important. And what do they do on this outing? Well, you'll find out on the next episode. <laughs> Again, <laughs> that's right. Uh, <laughs> I'm doing it again. It's a three-part episode. I will let you know, though, the third is the final. This Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern. As always, episodes are available first on our website, www.deathbydvd.transistor.fm. The stunning conclusion to Patty Hearst in her own words. Well, Patty Hearst in my own words. Yeah, 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 yeah. And stunning may be a poor word to use. Uh, um... It's going to be, it's going to be a, a conclusion. There we go. It's going to be a conclusion. The ashtray is full and the bottle is empty. Friday, Friday, Friday. Stay tuned. And be sure to subscribe to Death by DVD on your favorite podcasting app. Follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all that jazz. Tell your friends, show your family. Learn to love it. My DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Yeah, she's Nick Affair. I am basically an example and a symbolic warning, not only to you, but um, to everyone, that, uh, that there are people that aren't going to accept to accept your support of uh, of other governments and that uh, basically suppress and and murder other people and uh, and this is a warning to everybody. And it's also to show what can be done when it's necessary, that people can be fed. And, it, and to show that it's too bad that it has to happen this way to make people see that, peop that there are people who need food. But um, you know, maybe something can be done about that so that things like this won't have to happen again. And they're also, the SLA is also very annoyed about attempts by the press and by authorities to turn this into a racial issue. It's not. This is a political issue and this is a political action that they've taken. 
independent. Anyone who really reads the stated objectives of the SLA can see very clearly that this is not a racial thing. And uh, I hope there won't be any more confusion about that. Turn over my notes here, so. Hi, I'm Nanny, and she thinks I have a problem. I'm Lindsay, and he definitely has a problem. I buy movies. A lot of movies. Lots of people buy movies. Yes, but you buy physical movies, Blu-rays, DVDs, VHS. You've even brought home but laser discs. It doesn't matter. You buy movies, too. But not as many as you. They're a collection. Your collection is ridiculous. It takes up an entire wall of our apartment. That's the problem. No, the problem is that you're addicted to streaming, and you won't watch any of them. Besides, I own way better movies than what's on streaming. But streaming is so much easier. You can just search for what you want to watch. You never know what you want to watch. You just sit there scrolling all day long. Because I want to watch something I haven't seen before, and I've seen everything we own. There's plenty of movies we own that you've never watched. And what about my movies that you refuse to watch? So we have a problem. And what are we going to do about it? I don't know. We could try watching them, maybe? Fine, but only the ones we haven't seen before. <laughs> it's going to be difficult. I, I've seen them all. And how about the ones that are still sealed? Okay, so we have a compromise. Yeah, every week we're going to watch one movie and answer ten questions. Because what's the point of collecting if you can't share it with the world? This is your way of showing it off, isn't it? Maybe. Collection Resurrection entiende por todas partes y que nos ha convertido en un banco directo grande, el más grande del mundo. No serás un cliente más, ni yo, ni un banco, ni nada más. El centro de nuestras estrategias son nuestros clientes. ¿Escuchas?